Okay, well, thank you. Morning, everybody. Uh, it's so good to be here. Right, we're in a series, as Annie said, called Reach. It's really talking about sharing our faith and, as we, and just all the different ways you can share your faith and also some of the hurdles we experience sometimes where, which maybe hold us back from being as open as we would like to be. And I suspect if I was to ask in a room like this, what is one of the main things that sometimes holds us back? Uh, I think often the, the, the biggest thing for many of us is simply this, that we're, we're worried about being rejected by people. You know, how many of us could just would, would acknowledge that? We, this person in front of us that we have an opportunity to be open with about our faith, there's a little concern if I'm open and I tell them what I really think, or what I believe in, <clears throat> that they're not going to like what I have to say. Now, that is not always the case. Obviously, we will, you know, some of you will have stories uh, people you shared your faith with who are absolutely ready to hear what you believed in. I was thinking back to a time when I was a teenager, and um, I was in a youth group, and there was a, a guy I knew at school with, and he, I think he had some kind of faith background, but, uh, but I don't think he was clear as a Christian. He wasn't kind of really through, and I invited him along, and he said yes immediately, uh, which was great. He came along, and he loved it, right, absolutely loved it came right through in terms of his faith, experienced the Holy Spirit, and kind of got, became really central in our kind of youth group. In fact, he started to kind of like become quite a kind of key dominant figure in our youth group, but to the point that I was thinking, I wish I'd never invited this guy along, because I just, <laughs> my ego couldn't quite cope with the fact he'd taken over my friends. And, uh, but he was ready. Uh, I don't really regret inviting him, but there was a little bit of that in me. But he was ready. But sometimes you'll be open about your faith, and... Uh, it's not like that. And the truth is, Jesus divides opinion. Yeah? Sometimes the gospel message is not always a popular message. And I think it's really helpful to be aware of that and to be clear on that. And there are, there are fundamental reasons why that is the case. Basically, the Bible teaches us that before we get born again, before we come to Jesus, before God does a work in our heart, that naturally, if you like, we are antagonistic towards God and the idea of God. Romans 5 says that we were, before we ever kind of get born again, we were God's enemies. Romans 8 says that we were, the, if you like, the mind governed by the flesh is hateful towards God. John 3 verse 19 says that people that we love darkness. In other words, before we ever come to Jesus, we love the darkness. We, we want to, because we, we don't want to come to the light because we know it's going to illuminate what's really in our hearts. In other words, human beings, if you like, are hardwired, really, to want to resist the idea that there's an authority beyond ourselves that we need to submit to. We don't like that idea. I've recently read a book by a guy called Tim Keller, who's an American pastor, theologian, thinker, and I read a book called The Hidden Christmas. I'm going to let you know whether, well, you can work out whether that means I'm really behind on my reading from last year or, or really ahead, okay? And in this book... It's a really good book. One of the, he has a chapter on Herod and King Herod's reaction to the news that Jesus is going to be born. And if you know the nativity story at all, you'll know that Herod reacts in a very aggressive and violent way to the news that he hears that there is another king going to be born. And Keller talks about that, saying basically this, Herod is already the king. And if you're already the king and you hear news of another king being born, you immediately feel like, your position is being threatened. There's a challenger. And Herod reacts strongly, aggressively, violently to the idea of a challenger to his own position. And he says, basically, that is often how our hearts respond to the challenge of Jesus in the gospel. 
that we want to be kings of our own lives. Before we're a Christian, we're the king. And so we react sometimes, and people react to the gospel story because Jesus is a challenge to our sovereignty. And I don't want a challenge. If I'm already king, I don't want this. Why, now, why does God have to tell me what I should do with my money or my, my body or my time? We don't want another king because we're already king. Unless it is, of course, you've come to the realization that you don't make a very good king yourself. Which is basically what happens when you become a Christian. Part of the process is realizing that you were never made to be the king. You were always made to be a follower. And you don't make a very good king in terms of ruling your own life. We're not very good at that. And you realize that actually I think Jesus is much better at that. And I want him to be king and I'm going to be a follower. And you make that switch. But until that happens, we are hardwired to want to resist the idea that there's another king and that somehow I have to submit. Jesus says himself, doesn't he, that blessed are you when people hate you because of me. It doesn't feel very blessed when that happens. But actually, I think it's so helpful to know that sometimes Jesus divides opinion. And it's really important. If you want to actually be open about your faith, if you really want to do this, you know, which we do, we don't want to just sit in church, right, and just talk about it. If we're actually going to do this, we have to settle the idea somewhere in our hearts that we cannot live our lives just trying to placate and be popular with everybody. If that's how you're going to live, you'll never open your mouth at all about your faith. It's imagine if you, if you kind of drew a big smiley face up and we lived our lives wanting to kind of get affirmation from everybody. We want the smiley face wherever we go. Yeah? It means that we will never open our mouths, we'll never say what we believe, we'll never be really open about our faith because actually the truth is not everybody will smile when you tell them you're a Christian. And somewhere along the line, we have to settle where I'm going to get my affirmation from. That actually what's going to happen is I'm going I'm to settle in my heart that actually I believe that God's affirmation, his sense of identity and security, I can draw from him that God's for me, that he loves me in such a way and to such an extent that I don't have to be popular with everybody else. Now, I'm not going to go out my way to make myself unpopular. I'm going to be winsome and kind and respectful and prayerful. But the truth is, when you share that you're a Christian, not everybody's going to like that all the time. And we have to settle that sometimes. We have to settle it before we walk into school, before you walk into college, before you walk into work, before you walk into that new social setting, whatever it is. We have to settle that issue because Jesus divides opinions. He does. Now, into that context, I want to talk out of Mark 5, the passage we've just heard, and I want to talk about the power of your story. In other words, a story of, if you're a Christian here, the journey of being far away from God and then coming to a place of accepting Jesus and following him, and there's power in there. And I believe, particularly in our culture, Western secular culture, this is a very powerful Tool And Mark 5 is a very helpful passage, quite interesting. In fact, the story in Mark 5 really begins in Mark 4. Because in Mark 4, Jesus casually says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Let's get in the boat, let's sail, and we're going to go to the other side. Now, John Ortberg, who's one of my favorite authors, wrote a book called um, Who Is This Man? It's about the impact of Jesus on history. And he says this about Mark 5 and that story. He says, when Jesus says, let's go to the other side, he's literally dropping a bomb. We read it and we kind of go, oh, yeah, it's just geography. They're going somewhere else. But no, Jesus is actually saying, let's gather up 
we're going to set sail, and it's like, we're going to go to the dark side. That's basically what that phrase means. It's code language. Jesus is not just talking about geography when he says, let's go to the other side. You see, on the other side of the lake, the Decapolis, if you like, that region means 10 cities. And that was, from the Jewish perspective, basically enemy territory. It's mainly pagan. There was a rabbinic ter- tradition that the Decapolis, this area, was the area that the seven nations of Canaan had been driven out into and they had settled there. So it's full of enemy pagans. It was also the center of, a, or a center of Roman power in that region. So there was a legion of Roman soldiers there, about 6,000 soldiers, they reckon. So when Jesus meets a man who asks him what his name is, and he says, my name's Legion, that has two meanings. Because it's con- this was a center of Roman power. So the Jews regarded this whole area as like the place where Satan lived. It's dark, evil, oppressive, demonic. It's a bit like North London, okay? <laughs> so... I normally pick on Sidcup. I thought I'd pick on North London today. <laughs> Apologies. People just getting up. We come from North London, leaving the church. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. But this was that kind of place you didn't go to, right? It's certainly not the place that the Messiah goes to because that's not your people. You don't go there. And so Jesus says, gather up. We're going to go to the other side. What's he saying? Well, he's making a point right from the word go. He's saying this, I'm for all sides. In other words, in his perspective, there isn't another side. And all the sides he's saying are mine. So they go. The disciples are probably like pretty reluctant. They get in a boat and they go. And when they arrive, the only person they meet is a demonized outcast. That's their reception committee. That's the only one. Now, I want you to notice stuff immediately, okay? Notice this. Jesus chooses the most hostile, dark, evil, most unwelcoming context to be the very place he wants to go to. He picks it out. He's like, that's where we're going to go. He chooses the most hostile environment. He wants to invade it. So he says, let's go. And he does it again and again in the Gospels. He keeps picking people. He keeps going to fallen people and people who are far away and hostile people. And he keeps going after them and telling stories about them. And one of the most powerful things about this story, I think, is that God wants to stir faith in us about the context we live in and we work in. Because sometimes we think, my workplace, my staff room, my school friendship circle, whatever it is, we think that's just way too hostile for Jesus. I can't be open about Jesus in that context. It's just too hostile. It's like enemy territory. And I think you read Mark 5, and it's like Jesus wants to say, do you know what, you may think it's too hostile for you, but it's not too hostile for me. Like, Jesus is like, that's where we're going. It's like, pack up. That's where we're going. That's why I've come. I'm choosing the most hostile environments to go to. And I think maybe we just need to kind of like switch our minds around and think, you know what, actually Jesus is big enough to look after himself in my staff room and in my office and in my workplace. That's the very place he wants to be. Not too hostile for him. Maybe sometimes too hostile for us, but I think he's saying, no, no, the darkest place is the very place he chooses to go to. And I think God wants to stir faith in us about your own context, that actually Jesus wants to invade your context. It's not too hostile. People are not too far away and fallen for him. 
Notice this as well. This is interesting. Jesus doesn't exactly kind of smash it out of the park in terms of what happens the first times he's there. He doesn't get a great reception. Things don't go particularly well in one sense. He arrives, the demonized man comes out, the evil spirits recognize who Jesus is, and they plead with him, don't, don't torture us, which is kind of interesting. Don't torture us. Don't, don't torture us. And Jesus talks to the man and says, what's your name? And he says, my name is Legion because there are many of us. And the evil spirits are like, don't send us out of the area. And they say, see these herds of pigs, send us into them. So Jesus says, come out, delivers the man, which is what Jesus does, delivers him from everything that's held him back, delivers him. And the pigs go, the the evil spirits go into the pigs and they run into the water and they drown. Now, as an aside, I always think whenever I read this story, I'm like, what happened to the guys who owned the pigs? Because they're like, we didn't have pig insurance. Like, we weren't expecting that. Why didn't he send them into the wasps like normal? Because they're always demonized. Why the pigs? Like, what's going on in this story? You just don't get those answers. It's one of the things you could ask one day when you see him face to face. But news spreads, right? News spreads. People start turning up from everywhere because they hear that something has happened out in the tombs. And they, it spreads, and these crowds start to turn up. Now, a very strange things happen. Everywhere else in the Gospels, crowds appear, and they beg... Jesus to do what? To heal, to stay, to not leave. Here in this story, what happens? Crowds turn up and they do what? They beg him to what? Leave. It's a really strange story. You have to notice these things. Everywhere else, people are running to Jesus. They're bringing children. They're bringing their sick. They're smashing holes in the ceilings. You know, women who are like, not supposed to be out in public were trying to touch his robe. They're trying to get somewhere near him. This story... They turn up and they are desperate for him to leave. Please leave. Go away. Don't stay. Now, why are they desperate for him to leave? Why? Because they're afraid of him. Like, they've seen that he has power, clearly. But they are not convinced he's good. So he's a threat, in other words. They're worried. He's got power. They know he comes from somewhere else. They know this, right? He, they know he's coming from somewhere else. And he has power, but I'm not at all convinced he's going to be good. So please leave, because they're worried he's going to use the, their, his power against them. Now, lots of people who are not Christians feel like that about God. They may well acknowledge that there is some kind of God, yeah? Lots of people know that there's, it basically requires more faith to be an atheist than some kind of believer in some kind of creator, basically. Both positions require faith, by the way. Okay, So don't believe when people say to you, oh, I don't have a faith. You definitely have a faith. It's just your faith is in something else. Everybody has a faith. And lots of people have a faith in that there's some kind of creator, but they are not at all sure that he's good. And that's how they view God. They think, no, 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 he, he's not going to be for me because my life is so fallen. I'm so far away. I do such awful things and have such terrible thoughts that God is not going to be good to me. He might be good to you if you're good, but I know I'm not good. So he's never, and they have this really clear view that God may exist, but he's not for me. He's powerful, but he's a threat, and I want to stay away. That's how lots of people think. In fact, sometimes even in churches, we still think that you may have become a Christian, but actually the truth is your perception of God is that he's real, but you're not sure he's good. 
You're not at all convinced he's for you, which is why when you walked into worship today, which I heard was a remarkable time, when you walked in, somewhere inside you there's a voice going, you shouldn't really be here. You know what you've been watching or thinking about this week or doing? You should be in here. God's not happy with you. And your perception of God is that he's basically hardwired to be against you. He's critical, distant, judgmental. He's not going to be good to you. Sometimes that is because we carry that, sometimes because of something in our past. Maybe a way we've been taught about Christianity, a very legalistic, rule-driven approach. Or maybe we've just had authority figures in our childhood who have been harsh and distant and critical. And we have taken that, maybe a father figure, and that has been the lens now through which we see and perceive God. We see him like that person. And if you are in this room today and that's where you are, I absolutely believe God wants to liberate you from that. And today, maybe it could happen today, this could be the beginning of a journey where truth needs to replace things which are lies about who God is and about who you are. Sometimes when we're like that, we can live our whole life trying to bow down to the smiley face because we hate, hate anybody thinking badly of us. I think God really wants to liberate you if that's where you are. So they realize he is powerful, but they're not convinced he's good. So they beg him to leave. But before he leaves, he talks to this man. Now, I don't know what to call him anymore because he used to be called Legion, but now he's Legionless, okay? So he chats with Legionless, and another really weird thing's happened. Up until now in the Gospels, every time Jesus seems to meet people, what does he say to them? He says, you, come and follow me. Leave everything and follow me. Now in this story, this guy's desperate. He's like gagging to follow Jesus. He's like, you know, you can see Jesus get one foot in the boat. And he's like, let me come with you. I want to follow you. And, and you read the story and suddenly Jesus says, what? No, you can't follow me. You have to stay. So everywhere else Jesus is saying, follow me. Here he says this, go home to your own people or your family. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go home. You can't follow me. You've got to stay. And it's almost, it feels unfair. You can kind of sense the disappointment as Jesus gets in the boat and he starts to set sail because this guy, this what was demonized guy who's now in his right mind is watching the only person who's ever been kind to him set sail and leave. And he has to turn around and face the crowd who also don't know what to call him because the crowds have shown up. It's not like news hasn't spread. It's really interesting. Jesus says, go home and tell people. But you kind of go, well, people already know. They've all turned up. Like the guys who'd been tending the pigs have told everybody in crowds. So what is Jesus going on about? Why do I need to tell people when they're already here? People already kind of know about Jesus, sort of. But what Jesus is saying is they don't need just to hear news. They need to hear your story. They need to see a person. They need to see a changed life. They need to see what mercy can do in someone's life. That's why Jesus says, it's a really lovely line. He goes, go home and tell them what mercy has done in you. That's such a good line. It's like, it's a good line, Jesus. Well done. You know, I, <laughs> that's such a good line. Because if they see that, if they hear that, 
then this man Jesus starts to slowly change from being a threat to a hope. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, listen, the most powerful thing that can happen right now is not that I stay, but that you stay. That's, that's an, like a bit of a mind. But he says, literally, I'm going to leave. The most powerful thing that happens right now is you stay, you tell your story. Go to your people and tell your story. These people are not ready for me yet, but they are ready, if you like, for you. Now, it's really interesting in Mark 4, again, if you read back, that, that chapter before this story, Jesus has been telling stories. And one of the stories he's telling is the story of the parable of the, of the sower and the seed. Some of you will know this story. And he's basically saying, listen, sharing the gospel, the, the kingdom is like seed that you throw and is scattered. And some of the seed, it's basically about the soil in which the seed falls. Some of the soil is receptive and the seed can like, connect with. But some soil is totally unreceptive. It's too hard. It can't receive the seed. It can't, it can't hear it. And the soil, if you like, represents our hearts, people's hearts. And you're saying, some people's hearts are ready. Some people are almost ready, but the seed kind of connects them, and then it just gets kind of withers and dies and doesn't really grow. Other people's hearts are just not ready at all for the news about who Jesus is. And it's like Jesus is saying to this guy, the soil of their hearts is not ready for me, but it is ready for you. And maybe if you stay and tell your story, the soil, the condition of their hearts will shift a little bit in terms of being receptive and open to the idea that God might be good. So he tells him you need to stay and tell your story. These people who have shunned you, ostracized you, mistreated you, they now need you to stay and tell your story. Let me make some really obvious comments. People need to see our lives. Okay? They have to see that you are a Christian. They, they, you have to live it out amongst them. Not being preachy, not being pushy, just open and clear. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that you're a light. I'm a light. And he says lights are not made to be hidden under something. That's, a, that's pointless. That's not what they're made for. Lights are, being made, are made to be sh- shared, basically. You get it, you put it up high, and it gives light to all around. That's what a light is supposed to do. So, so don't hide it. And the reason he says it is because sometimes we literally live like hidden lives. And one of the things, if you're a Christian, this could be your move. This might be the only thing you need to hear today. Your move is literally this. You need to get open about being a Christian. If you, know, you have to take the lid off, move it, remove it away, and go, I'm not going to live my life bowing down to the smiley face and try and win popularity everywhere. I'm going to be open about my faith, and you need to let your light shine. You need to be open. Jesus says this, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good days and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, there seems to be a connection between people coming to a place of acknowledging Jesus for who he is, and you shining and being open about your life as a Christian. And for some of us, that's our move. You're in a context right now in a school or a college or a workplace. Or a, and people there like you, but they have no idea you're a Christian. And, and your move is this. Jesus is saying, you need to take the lid off and let people see who you really are. 
In other words, it's time. You can't live or you shouldn't live a hidden life. Take the light out. Now, let me give you, this is a, I'm going to give you a tip for free here, okay? Tomorrow morning, for those of you who are in work or at school or wherever you are, what, what are people going to ask you tomorrow? How was your weekend? What did you do at the weekend? Okay, so now when that question comes, I am in your head tomorrow, okay? <laughs> you remember me when the cock crows the third time, okay? So I'm in your head, okay? When the question comes, you have a choice. You can fudge it and go, well, I went to the cinema, blah, 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 blah. Or you can say, I went to church. Just take the lid off. Then you can say this, and I heard an amazing preacher. (laughs) I'm just putting it out there as an idea. It was life-changing. It's the best preacher I've ever heard. But you can kind of keep going, you know, like, you know. No, don't say all that stuff. But just say, I went to church. Like, so I've started playing a bit of football again um, recently, and there's a bunch of people I don't know at all, nothing to do with the church. It's great. And I couldn't play for a few weeks, and I had to email them and say, like, I can't turn up. And so I thought, I'm just going to tell them. So I was just sending this email. I said, I can't come. I've had a few meetings. I'm a bit injured. I had a few meetings because I work some evenings, so I'm a pastor in a church. I thought, I'm just going to take the lid off can't live my life worrying whether that's a happy bit of news or not. So you get up, that's basically, for some of us, that's all you have to do now. You have to be open. Now, when you're open, sooner or later, someone will ask you a question about your faith. An opportunity will come. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. He says this, I love this. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I think that's such great, brilliant. Be ready. Have a, like, an answer for the hope you have, but do it with gently, with respect. Tell them a little bit about your journey. Now, a couple of comments on this one. When someone gives you an opportunity, here, can I suggest a couple of things? First thing is, don't go on forever. <laughs> don't unload your entire story in like... You know, you know, in the kind of, just don't bang on and on and ever. You know, trust God that he can fill out the blanks. You don't have to unload the entire payload in one go. Now, don't be like the people who, you know, to the, apologies if you've done this, but the people that you go around their house and you ask them about their holiday, and then they say, oh, yeah, I've got some photos I'm going to show you. Great, that's nice. But then they take as long showing you the photos as it was for them to be on the holiday in the first place. Yeah, don't, don't do that. I remember I went to a friend of mine, he'd been off somewhere, white water rafting somewhere in America, I think. And I said, oh, how was your holiday? He said, oh, it's great, I've got some photos. And this was back in the day when you'd get, I sound like an old person, uh, which I know I'm not, uh, but pictures, you know, that you'd print off, right? And, and he sat down with me, I knew I was in trouble when he didn't relinquish control of the pictures to me. So he's going through at his own pace. You know you're in trouble when they don't give you the iPad or the phone and they want to flick at their speed and they start to tell you, that's, yeah, that was Brian. He was at the front of the boat. And that was Emma. She was great. She actually grew up in love, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, like, after half an hour, I'm like literally thinking, I am never, ever going to ask this guy ever about any of his holidays ever again. So when someone gives you an opportunity, don't go on forever because they're going to go, I'm never asking them ever again. <laughs> Second comment is, though, don't believe the lie that you don't have a story. Okay, I used to, growing up, I kind of grew up going to church. I used to hear people give their testimony and typically 
And if you have a very dramatic testimony, let me just say, it's, that's brilliant. This is not a comment about that at all. But I, typically, I'd hear very, very dramatic stories. And it used to leave me a little bit of a sense of which I'm not sure I've even got anything to say. Who's going to want to hear my story? It's like, my story is boring compared to that story. To the point that as a teenager, I used to think, maybe I've got to make things up. I've got to be, yeah, I was a drugs baron in Colombia. <laughs> you know, I've got to find something more exciting to tell people. But actually, the truth is, God will use your story to resonate with people where they are. And there'll be certain people that God will bring across your path whose your story especially really speaks to them. Okay, let me tell you a little bit of my story. And try to stay awake as I tell you my story, okay? I grew up in Colombia. I was, no, I wasn't. Okay, so I grew up going to church, became a Christian when my only teenage years, that was all very authentic and great. But as some people do, you know, I struggled a bit as a teenager and maybe my, my kind of early 20s. And the truth is, there wasn't great outward rebellion, but internally I felt pretty divided. And I was neither living, living clearly as a Christian or living in the world. And I was just neither one or the other. I sat on the fence for far too long. And that is a very dissatisfying place to live, by the way. And I remember getting to my early 20s, and I really started to feel very dissatisfied about my life. And it, God was using that, really, to start to speak to me about getting clear, about living absolutely clearly and making a choice. And I went through a season in my life where I did that, you know, I repented of some things. I got very clear on some stuff. And I remember seasons and moments of forgiveness and just feeling clean and feeling clear and feeling like I was coming home. And the sense of relief and release was just awesome. Now, for some of you, right, what I've just told you about my story absolutely resonates where you are right now. Because that's where you are. You may be very similar, or you just live in a life outwardly, no great rebellion, but inwardly, you're just not clear at all. And it's just breeding a sense of dissatisfaction in your heart because you're not becoming who God's called you to be. And my story is resonating with you right now. God will give you and has given you a story which he can use in people's hearts. And you may well just, as you share it, begin to change the soil in their own hearts when it comes to receptiveness to Jesus. Now, as we close, do you know what happens in the end of this story? It's really brilliant, actually. So Jesus leaves, and the man does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. He goes and he tells people how much Jesus has done for him, and all the people, we are told, were amazed. Now, you read on in the rest of Mark 6 and Mark 7, Jesus returns. He comes back to the same area. Do you know what happens this time? First time, one demonized outcast meets him. Second time, when he returns, thousands turn up. Thousands of people turn up. People who have been begging for him to leave are now desperate for him to intervene, to act, to heal. They're bringing children, they're bringing sick people, they're trying to touch the edge of his robe. He does the same miracle that he'd done previously on the other side. He does here. He feeds thousands of people by multiplying food again because he's starting to feed and teach people on this side just like he has on this side. And they reckon that what happens, the receptiveness on this side of the lake is probably the most remarkable bit of kind of gospel outreach you see in the gospels. It's like incredible, miraculous stuff. The difference seemingly between the first time and the second time is what? Someone tells their story. 
In other words, the condition of the soil, of the culture, the fabric of the area appears to change because this man does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. Tell your story about what I've done in your heart. That's the difference. Go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. In other words, Jesus now is no longer a threat. He's a hope. So I want to just really encourage you very simply this week, tomorrow, you get the question, remember, I'm in your head. And when someone gives you a, just tell me a little, oh, why are you Christian? Just ask you, take the opportunity and believe, believe. Don't just do it because you think, oh, I ought to. Believe, actually, although I can't necessarily see it, maybe it's imperceptible to you that Jesus is going to own your story as you say, this is why I have a hope, or this is what God has done. This is what mercy has done in my life. This is the change for me that God can begin to change the soil in that person's heart so they start to be open that Jesus might be a hope and not a threat. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Andy, you can come up and start.